Good afternoon. I'm Dudley Rose, the Associate Dean for Ministry Studies, and I'm gonna start with just a moment of housekeeping. Uh, there are people here who will be voting. You have ballots. It says to rank the first three. We would like you to rank the first four, since there are four uh, preachers to so rank all four, and it is a forced ranking, no ties, no blanks. Otherwise, your ballot will be discarded. Um, it says also in the bulletin that there are cash awards for the top three uh, preachers. In our largesse, we have uh, decided to correct that as well, and that all of our finalists today will receive cash awards. So fear not uh, that uh, that will happen. So in in 1904, this uh, uh, award was established. It's been around for a very long time, and over that period of time, uh, this and Divinity Hall Chapel have been filled with a great many wonderful sermons. It is a competition, and that, in many people's minds, including mine, uh, seems odd for sermons, right, for preaching. Um, and uh, yet how Harvard it is. <laughs> But when Dietrich Bonhoeffer was teaching seminarians at Finkenwalde, uh, he used to tell his seminarians who would be learning preaching at the same time that they were uh, giving sermons and listening to each other to avoid the temptation to be judging and deconstructing and taking apart the sermons that they were listening to, but instead to, in every case, listen for the word of God that would be in the sermon. So I would invite you today to listen for the sacred in each of these presentations and sermons. Thanks so much. In response to the controversy that has been unfolding at United Lutheran Seminary and on behalf of the HDS Lutherans and Union Theological Lutherans, I share with you a reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. Though if I did regret it, for I see that I, that I grieved you with that letter, and that, but because your grief led to repentance, for you felt a godly grief, so that you were not harmed in any way by us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation and brings no regret. But worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself guiltless in this matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did wrong, nor on account of the one who was wronged, but in order that your zeal for us might be made known to you before God. For it is in this and only in this that we find comfort. Glory to you, O God. Afternoon. Afternoon. So I'm going to have to ask you all to hop into your liturgical time machines a little bit on this one, because even though it's Easter, this here is an Ash Wednesday sermon. 
A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, beginning the sixth chapter and the 16th verse. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It all started a few days before Christmas. I came home late one night to open the door to my apartment, and turning the lock, I discovered that my hand didn't have the strength to do it. The next night, over drinks with friends, a glass slipped out of my left hand. Now, dexterity isn't my strong suit, I'll be the first to admit that. But the morning after, I awoke to a strange tingling in my arm, and a muscle that no matter how I massaged it, or iced it, or heated it, wouldn't stop twitching. It didn't stop me from doing anything important, but right when I thought it was just one of those things or that I'd slept on it funny, it would come back, fainter or stronger, depending on the hour. Not obvious or painful, just there, a weakness. It'll go away, I thought. These things always do. But it didn't. And the trouble I discovered, with having spent a great deal of time thinking about the way that we handle illness in our society, and having spent also a great deal of time in hospitals, sitting with patients with ALS or MS or Parkinson's, is that you have no shortage of images about what those symptoms can portend. There were days when I reasoned that the odds of this being anything bad were very remote. But on an Ash Wednesday evening, I couldn't really see any other explanation and that this was at the very early stages of something very, very bad. Now, I know that there's nothing that gives a sermon instant credibility quite like believing that it's a preacher's last one. <laughs> it's a homiletic cheating, really. I mean, are you going to argue with a dying preacher? <laughs> Didn't think so. So I need to spoil the ending for you here a little bit and tell you that if you had placed your money on my being A, a hypochondriac, and B, needing to spend a little less time thinking about Christian burial rituals, you can come down and collect your prize when I'm done. <laughs> but I don't think you can spend as much time with the dying as I do, and not imagine yourself there just a little bit. And funny enough, I'm not one of those people who imagines the moment of my death as much as I try to envision the moment when I learn that I am going to die. I'd always sort of pictured it as this serene sort of moment overcome with gratitude and peace and acceptance and trying to teach something from it, but that's not how it was sitting in a darkened church on an Ash Wednesday Eve, this smudge of ash newly upon my forehead. 
I can't speak for anybody else in such a moment, but at the time, I was thinking a lot about Netflix and how much of the world I could have saved with all those hours. <laughs> or every argument or fight I hadn't quite forgiven. I wondered if I should follow the example of a medieval French monarch or two and devote the rest of my life to prayer in a monastery. And like any good millennial, I had a hot second of thinking that a quest for my own good death would make a really nice podcast. <laughs> but mostly, mostly I was afraid and angry. Afraid of pain, I suppose, but mainly angry at the, the raw injustice of it. At this future that I'd envisioned of trying to help people come to terms with their mortality, only to shuffle off this mortal coil before I could put any of it into practice. I've made something of an academic career out of steering people away from theodicies, only to fall into the most pernicious one myself. That somehow I deserved better, the chance to accomplish more and to do more. On Ash Wednesday every year, we're treated to this reading, which is basically Jesus' how-to manual for Lent. And it seems simple enough, right? To put no store by the frail and vulnerable things, but to focus instead on what is not subject to rust or to decay. Transcends your limitations and your fears and focus on what really, in the end, matters. Where your treasure is, you see your heart will be also. So you had best make it the right treasure. And so we fast. And so we give up things starting with this day that do not matter in the hope of only leaving room in our narrow bandwidth for what does. There's a way of thinking about this fasting that's popular now where endurance is the point. What can we give up that will purify us, that will make us better? What do we want to emerge from these 40 days having left behind us, leaving us a little more dependent, a little less dependent, and a little more worthy of the resurrection that comes at the end of it all? What vine, if only we could prune it away, will give us the body we want, the relationships we want, the faith that we want, and the self-awareness that we lack? It's like CrossFit, except according to Jesus, we're not supposed to talk about it all the time. <laughs> and that part is critical. Never, ever, Jesus tells the disciples, complain. If you're doing it right, after all, whatever's painful is nothing compared to the transformation that is already unfolding. I hadn't fasted for years before this last Ash Wednesday. I couldn't stomach the performance of it, of posting on Facebook about giving up Facebook. <laughs> but here, now, in this involuntary fast, divested of that necessary fiction we all have, that as long as I made the right choices and cared about the right things, it would all turn out all right. There was an epiphany that I'm really, really bad at this. This whole putting up a treasure somewhere other than this body 
and this life, sustained as it is by wealth and happenstance and the certainty that it endures. I knew now where my heart is. And it was this fleshy one right here and all that I thought it could control. No cross of ash boldly displayed to the world and no amount of oil can cover that loss and that grief. But that's the thing about fasting. It's an exercise, not in discipline maybe, but failure. Not because you don't manage to not eat added sugar for 40 days or never argue with a person during the season. But Jesus tells the disciples to cover their heads with oil and wash their faces, never to speak of a Lenten fast, because it will always be impossible. The point isn't that you transcend whatever it is you're giving up with stoic grace, but because you won't be able to in the end. Think about what it is that Jesus suggests fasting on. Food, sure, but money, mostly. And the most vanishing and decaying thing of all is our own body and the illusion of control. The real fast that Jesus seems interested in here are the things that are so alloyed with who we are that there is no way of giving them up. And the end of a day or a season of fasting doesn't show you usually how little you really need whatever it was that you gave up. But it shows you what you really hunger for and what your treasure really is. Lent isn't a season of recovery or of cleansing. It's a season of withdrawal, forcing us to look at what we are, what we fear, and what we serve. And beloved, that matters, because that's what this gospel is for. It's not for the perfected, sanitized, self-actualized, and enlightened post-Lent version of ourselves that merits this journey toward a cross. The gospel is for the fearful. It is for the addicted. It is for the wrathful. It is for the ill. It is for people like me who talked ourselves into thinking that we could play all of our cards right. These things we can't look at these woefully wrong treasures. That's what these ashes and the shape they take are for. So I can't really recommend to you this practice. I can't really recommend to you that you go for a run very late at night and trip over a tree root and injure a nerve in your hand and then refuse to seek medical attention for it. <laughs> And I can't recommend it only because it's really painful and I don't know how to find the nerve again. But it was undeniably effective at getting into the spirit of things. And this Ash Wednesday, if your Lent journey be of anything, let it not be of giving up something for 40 days or 40 years, but of staring at the question you don't want to ask, of stripping away all the things you use to sate those hungers, and realize that the hunger itself is what matters. It's not a resurrected body that merits salvation, but the one with all the wrong treasures 
that is broken and perfect and lost and loved that merits a resurrection and is already being made new. Amen. Good afternoon, everyone. Hear now a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27, verses 62 to 66. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. And the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. In this passage, traditionally read about a month and a half after Hal's on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, we find religious leaders conferring with a Roman governor just two days after they've silenced a religiously and politically subversive voice in their community. The man in question is dead and buried, but before he died, he said something they just can't get out of their heads. They're not even sure where they heard it exactly, but apparently this guy claimed that after three days had passed, he would rise from the dead. Jesus' words have been bothering these leaders. The situation was handled, but they're feeling uncertain. And in talking amongst themselves, they've come up with a troubling what if. What if his buddies come back and take his body and stage a resurrection, they ask. They're thinking into the minds of Jesus' disciples, imagining them to be just as calculating as they themselves are. And so they concoct a plan to block the disciples' next move. When the chief priests and the Pharisees pitch their plan to the governor, they say of their suspicions that the last deception would be worse than the first. In other words, Jesus claiming to be the Son of God was bad enough, but the disciples staging a resurrection, a martyr who won't even stay dead, the thought unsettles them, and they respond with decisive action. They see the disciples as a threat to stability and predictability. They don't like feeling blind to what might happen next, so they take hurried action to banish the stress of uncertainty once and for all. Just to be clear, the disciples the religious and political leaders are so worried about are nowhere to be found in this text. And the last time we saw them in Matthew's Gospel, they had fled the scene of Jesus' arrest, and one of them was busily denying several times that he ever knew the guy. We don't see them on this Saturday, but the religious and political leaders see the world only through the lens of their own way of thinking, and so they apply that way of thinking to the disciples as well. They say to Pilate, 
His disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception would be worse than the first. The chief priests have spent so long maneuvering and strategizing that they assume Jesus' followers would be doing the same, their view of reality confined by their own ideology. I want to speak for a moment about ideology. Ideologies position an idea or a political goal as of ultimate value instead of pointing ultimately toward God. Another way to name this in my tradition is idolatry, and it's easy for me to see political ideology as idolatry when it's, say, centered around Second Amendment rights or upholding the death penalty under any circumstances. But progressive Christians like myself have our own political agendas that we treat as endpoints, which block our ability to see beyond them toward God. And I think sometimes, for us, political activism itself becomes an idol. The religious and political leaders in Matthew's Gospel decide that sealing and guarding Jesus' tomb will protect the boundaries of the ideological status quo. We are in charge, Jesus was a crazy heretic, and above all, people don't raise from the dead. How desperately do we want our ideology to prevail? Enough that we feel comfortable silencing those who don't agree? Enough that our political agenda becomes our ultimate concern? Enough that we start to aim for this world, but with more progressive policies, rather than for another world altogether, sealing our own ideologies in stone to make us feel secure, even if that means sealing the kingdom out. I've been in several self-identified progressive churches lately where, from looking at the bulletin or the posters or hearing the announcements, one could well conclude that political activism is the sole point of church. And let me be clear, I think political action is an important way to witness to God's kingdom. But in desperate political moments like the ones we seem to find ourselves in weekly these days, it can be easy to get God confused with, say, the Democratic Party. I remember sitting in church on the Sunday before the Alabama special Senate election last December as a congregant prayed for voter turnout and that Doug Jones would win. And I wanted those things, too. I wanted desperately some sign that we weren't quite as screwed as it felt like we were, some political victory to make the darkness go away faster. And as we responded in unison, Lord, hear our prayer, I found myself thinking, well, at least democracy is a better idol than guns. But God didn't tell us not to have idols unless we picked the good ones. As Christians, we are called to put our faith in Christ and nowhere else, especially not in our own ideas. Or as Anne Lamott puts it, you can safely assume that you've created God in your image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. So speaking of God then, where is she in this story? Behind the sealed stone, the tomb has gone dark. 
No light seeps in. The soldier's shifting feet cannot be heard outside, for all is silent and still. Here in the cool air, lying on the ground, wrapped in cloth and spices, God's bones waiting. It was the Sabbath day, the day marking God's rest. The work of resurrection would take place before the stone was unsealed, when it seemed the empire had succeeded. But was there any sign inside the tomb on that Sabbath day of what was to come? We cannot see in the dark, and this makes us nervous. We use political activity sometimes to ignite a spark of hope so that we can avoid having to feel like we are in the dark. We get desperate to find something to do that will banish the darkness faster. But the dark tomb is the site of God's radical activity. If we were not so caught up in the necessity of our vision, we might see through God's eyes that, as Rebecca Solnit writes, the future is dark, but with a darkness as much of the womb as of the grave. As much of the womb as of the grave. I want to zoom out a bit and show you what comes right before and right after this passage in Matthew. Hear it now again. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember what that imposter said while he was still alive. After three days, I will rise again. Therefore, command the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may go and steal him away and tell the people he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went with the guard and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, faithful women on both sides of this story. We don't see these women doing much other than sitting or standing by the tomb and looking at it. Their response to a dark event is to see the darkness, to return over and over to the sight of love, to see the darkness, returning again and again to the sight of love. What if, when we went to church, we did what the women do in this story, stood and looked at the tomb, saw the darkness, the sight of God's radical activity, and kept our sights there, so that when we do act, as we must, it is not in the service of our own vision, but of God's. Amen. Good afternoon. 
There is a certain way of speaking and of writing that you may have come across here at graduate school. Wait, let me rephrase that and maybe you'll see what I mean. There is a linguistic epistemological praxis, <laughs> a reification of ostentatious norms of expression that the thinking subject may encounter in this particularized milieu. I wish I were exaggerating, but there are times that I face my assigned readings and feel utterly overwhelmed by unfamiliar vocabulary. It provokes some combination of insecurity and frustration, one part feeling stupid for not understanding, and one part angry at those who refuse to speak plainly. Theology is the practice of faith-seeking understanding, but sometimes understanding seems to come at the cost of being understandable. <laughs> I don't think I'm alone in this feeling, and that's what I want to talk about. A couple summers ago, a survey went around online, and you might remember it. It mapped out the accents and dialects of the United States. It asked questions about whether you say syrup or syrup, soda or pop, lightning bug or firefly, and then pinpointed where your linguistic patterns best fit within the country. I can't help but feel that if someone were to map out the use of words like hermeneutics or reification, the map that showed up would be just this narrow scattering of college campuses and not much else. So who are we talking to? When we use this language, who are we talking to? It's not valueless. When we intend to reach an academic audience, having just these right words gives us authority and clarity. We want to be as clear as possible, so we use words that were invented to discuss the things that we need to talk about. Hermeneutics, or intersectional, or postmodern. There are certain conversations that can only happen when we lean on the shorthand that academia lends us. I think we also use these words sometimes to prove that we know them, <laughs> prove we belong particularly those of us who have been made to feel inferior or unintelligent, unauthoritative, women, people of color, anyone who's too often had to prove their belonging in academia or in ministry. We seek to treat our creeping imposter syndrome with the mastery of jargon. And it gives us real strength, gives us a voice where we might otherwise be unheard. So I'm not interested in condemning any particular type of language as wrong. I love words, and they all have their uses, even the obscure ones and even the pretentious ones. I only want to speak up on behalf of what is lost when we unthinkingly adopt this way of speaking, this way of being. Randall Monroe, a webcomic artist, once illustrated a blueprint of the Saturn V rocket, the rocket that successfully got us to the moon. This blueprint is labeled with explanations of the function of each part. And here's the twist. The explanations only use the thousand most common words in the English language. The blueprint is titled The Upgoer Five, <laughs> because neither Saturn nor rocket 
is in the list of common words. The image includes, for example, gas tanks labeled things holding that kind of air that makes your voice funny. <laughs> and an arrow pointing to the thrusters with the note, this end should point toward the ground if you want to go to space today. <laughs> it's an exercise meant to be a little bit silly, but to be perfectly honest, it's also the only reason I can now tell you the use of helium in launching a rocket. This stitching simpler words together to form a concept rather than reaching straight for technical terms has value. Taking the longer path toward meaning has value. I have adored the Upgoer 5 ever since I first saw it. Each component neatly labeled and simply explained. It takes something so far beyond my ability to grasp space travel advanced aeronautics and makes it accessible to me. And I know it's meant partly as a joke, but it feels more like a gift. Like someone has done this for me. Someone who loved the Saturn V so much that they took the time to share it with those who otherwise would never have been able to see what they love or understand it. And this is what I want to do. I am driven to study the things I love, God or faith or people, and if I ever want to speak about them, to show my loves to the world, I need to learn to speak with care and simplicity. Learn to drop the anxiety of proving my belonging, my authority, and say the words I actually mean. Words that will mean something to those who need them. It's sometimes hard to believe, but I came to divinity school because I didn't want to go into academia. Coming here was, for me, a step away from my undergraduate background in sociology, a step toward religion, an attempt to find a different way and to communicate more closely with communities that most need to be heard. The draw of religious community, of my call to ministry, rests so much on that ability to communicate, on the reach and the scope of spirituality. That people who will never attend a colloquium, never read an academic journal, never know or care what I mean when I say praxis, will come together week after week and do the work think and feel deeply about what it is that this world needs most, will come seeking a salvation they can apply to the lives they live, will not hesitate to speak powerful truths in plain language. Religious life has a way of mingling the ordinary and the sacred, of using common words to say uncommon things. Our faith doesn't need perfect terminology to be practiced, to be known, to be lived and spoken into the world. Had I become a sociologist, I might have striven to produce the next grand theory of how oppression can best be challenged. But as a minister, as a minister, I might learn to minister to people. It doesn't escape me that what I'm saying is part of a conversation that would be difficult to have outside these walls. These references to words only academics have to struggle with in the first place. Terms I had to look up to make sure I knew what I was saying. 
This sermon is not one I will give elsewhere, but it is one I believe we need. I struggle after three years here to make my words simple and meaningful, make them a gift the way the Upgoer Five was a gift to me. I'm still tangled, caught up in ego and fear and years of habitually leaning toward lecture. And I know I'm not alone. We can strive nonetheless to remember what brought us here. The desire for change or community or meaningful connection that brought you here. Every time we put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, every time we speak with the authority that these degrees grant us, we can remember who we are talking to, where we hope to be heard. We can put forth the effort to make our words into gifts and reach out beyond the narrow confines of our imposing walls and impressive vocabularies. We are not here at Harvard to prove we belong here. We are here to learn to be somewhere else. This place and these classrooms are not our destinations, but a part of our paths elsewhere. We are here to learn to be somewhere else. All I ask of myself and of others like me is that we remember where we are going and speak those destinations into these halls. May we go forth in community and courage, speak truth in love and simplicity, and may we use common words to say uncommon things. Amen. A reading from Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 1 through 12. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. The Lord said to Moses, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, but no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him and the Israelites obeyed him doing as the Lord had commanded Moses. Never since has there arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. He was unequaled for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land, 
and for all the mighty deeds and all the terrifying displays of power that, Mo that Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So good afternoon, everybody. It is an honor to be preaching with you all. For those of you who don't know, my name is Isaac Martinez, and I'm in my second year here at HDS. I'm also a postulant for ordination to the priesthood in the Episcopal Church. And words like postulant and seminarian would have been kind of foreign to me when I was growing up in southwest New Mexico, where I like to say that the big mountains matched my big dreams of being a missionary for the Pentecostal faith of my loving, tight-knit family. In my predominantly Roman Catholic small town, being Pentecostal marked me and my brothers and sisters as different. But I didn't mind so much. You see, I loved church too much to really let it bother me. I don't know if any of you have ever participated in Pentecostal worship, but imagine, if you can, exciting, pulsing music, people jumping and dancing. It was just fun. But my favorite part was actually when the piano slowed and the beautiful songs about God's love would start and everyone's tears would be flowing, mine included. So I kept on dreaming. In the back of my childhood Bible, and maybe some of you had this too, there was this set of full-color maps, and one of them was the journeys of the Apostle Paul. And I remember that I would trace my finger over all the places Paul went to, and I would imagine where my own missionary journeys might take me. But just as my heart was starting to really ache with this sense of call, I was starting to realize I was marked as different in another way. You see, of all the many terrible sins that my pastor preached against, one of the worst was homosexuality, and I could no longer deny that that was part of who I was. But let me tell you, I tried. I really tried. I would go home after church, fall on my knees at my bedside, and beg God to heal me, to fix me, to make me who God wanted me to be. And every time I would get up, my blanket soaked with tears, and I would still be gay. And I thought that I had failed, that I had failed my family, my church, and worst of all, that I had failed God. But one night as I was praying, a question popped into my head out of nowhere. If God made me and loves me as I believe, then why would God make me something that separated me from that love? Maybe, maybe, God loves me just the way I am. It took some time, but when I realized that nothing, nothing could separate me from the love of God, not even being gay, I knew that I couldn't remain in my Pentecostal church. And it would take many years and many thousands of miles before I found a place where I could both love God and deeply, truly know that God loved me. But over six years ago, I found that place in the Episcopal Church, and that is how I'm here today at HDS speaking with all of you. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that this is a fairy tale ending, and now I'm living it kind of happily ever after. The profound changes in my life, from denial to acceptance, from Pentecostal to Episcopalian, 
from small-town New Mexican to Harvard student, have also come with profound losses, such as an impaired relationship with some of my family back home. But even when I couldn't exactly see how, I believed and I hoped that there was a way that I could reconcile these parts of me, and that faith has sustained me until now. All change requires some loss. This is a truth that the people of Israel are profoundly aware of as they lose their beloved leader, Moses, Moses the great lawgiver. Let's get a little reacquainted with the story of Moses, how he grew up thinking he was an Egyptian prince, but found out that he was actually born a Hebrew slave, how he fled Egypt but encountered God in a burning bush and was told he was the one to free the Israelites from their bondage, how he led the people through the Red Sea and how they experienced God in fire and thunder on Mount Sinai when God chose them to be God's own people and how Moses kept interceding for the people when their faith wavered and they complained. And now Moses is at the end of his life. Even though he has led the people for 40 years in the wilderness, he will not be able to enter the promised land with them. But God allows him to see it from the top of a mountain on the other side of the Jordan River before he dies. And he is buried, presumably by God since no one knows where his tomb is and the people mourn him. And then they turn to Joshua, who will lead them into the promised land. Yes, my friends, this is a story that shows that all change requires loss. But since we can't stop the change, what do we do with our loss? I think we follow the Israelites and we mourn it. And we mourn it by telling and retelling our stories as individuals and as a community so that we honor who we are and whose we are. And we try to faithfully articulate, articulate what is most important, what is most essential for our identity. And we preserve that for the next stage of our journeys. Now this was not just Moses' work. It belonged to all of the people of Israel. In fact, some of you know that all of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses teaching the people how to teach themselves, how to keep the essentials of the law for themselves, to love God and to love their neighbor. In my brief time here at HDS, I can see how we, like the Israelites, are acknowledging our losses, mourning our past and moving forward. Yes, there is much that is still very uncertain and unknown, about trying to be an interfaith divinity school in an increasingly secular world. And that uncertainty may make us afraid. And I want to tell you that it is natural and understandable to be afraid. But we also know that perfect love casts out all fear. And I think we find that love here at HDS. We find it in classrooms. We find it in our student groups. We find it when we come together at noon service every week. We find it in many ways. So this week, I encourage you to reflect on how you may have discovered God's love here, the love that allows us to move past the losses of change into the land of abundance that God has promised us. Amen.
Friends, may we carry the upgoer five, <laughs> letting it lift us up and help us to use common words to say uncommon things. Maybe we'll see from the top of the mountain how all change will require loss. Will knowing that give us the courage to stare at the questions we don't want to ask? Or even if we're striving to see and we're nervous because we cannot see in the darkness, we know the dark tomb is the site of God's radical activity.